right, Revelation chapter 10 with me, if you would please. The mighty angel and the mystery of God. As we read through this last book of the Bible, it's actually the, also the book that's declaring of things to come. It addresses things that were taking place at the time when the instrument, the agent, the Apostle John, he was impacted. He, was in, he had an encounter with Jesus on this island of Patmos. And as he's there, God takes him into the future, even past where we are and into a time to come. And he reveals these truths. He reveals this coming judgment. The, gospel, or the book of Revelation is about Jesus Christ. It contains details about the Antichrist, but you've seen from chapter 1, it's about Jesus Christ, about his mercy, his kindness, his patience. He is the creator, the maker of all things. And so as creator, as the expression and extension of love, we also know he holds people accountable for their choices. He speaks to those who reject him. It's fascinating if you followed along so far that here we're in chapter 10 and the message of the gospel is still being made known to a Christ-rejecting world. See, what's taken place here prior to chapter 10, it took place right after chapter 4, verse 1. The gathering that's called the church, his people, his bride, he describes the church as, has been taken from the earth and, and, and whisked away, uh, rapidly removed, snatched away from earth into heaven. It's referred to as the rapture of the church. So the church is taken up into heaven, and now those who are left behind are what is a Christ-rejecting world. And so as the church is removed into heaven, you and I will be, up, will be in heaven. We won't be here in, in, on this planet. Chapter 6, we know is when God's wrath, the wrath of the Lamb has begun. Has begun. Now, this book is not as complex as it first appears. We see symbolism, and, and there's certain sections that are easy to track. Realize this. It's outlined by different increments of judgment. So as you start and you get to chapter, chapter 6, knowing that the church has been removed and those who have rejected Christ are still here, God pours his wrath out upon this Christ-rejecting world. It's described with six seal judgments. These are, these are uh, think of a scroll with a string tied on the top and then down across that scroll so you can't unroll it any further. There's six seals, actually seven seals on the scroll. So the first seal is opened up and it reveals judgment. So these six seal judgments are followed by a seventh seal, which is not judgment, but it opens up the seven trumpet judgments. And so then there's this, this blast, this you know, sound of a trumpet, and at that, we've already seen, then these various judgments are poured out. They're followed by the next outline of judgment, if you would, seal, trumpet, and then the bowls of wrath, the bowl judgments, which will be revealed, we'll get into when we get to chapter 16. So as I've said, we're in chapter 9, I mean 10. Chapter 9 ended with the sixth trumpet judgment. So the church is removed. The judgment of God, the wrath of God is being poured out incrementally, chronologically we could see. And we get to chapter 10 and there's an interlude. A, a, it's, a, it's a parenthetical 
uh, chapter, if you would, meaning the, the judgments have been listed. This, we see this order, but then there's like this parenthesis, so to speak, because chapter 10 speaks of something else within the flow of this judgment. Does that make sense? So what we're going to read about here is like, okay, I want you guys, the judgment, this is happening, this trumpet judgment. Oh, wait, wait a minute, I want you to know this too. And that's what we're going to read about here today. Chapter 10 being an interlude. It speaks of something else. And we're told that a mighty angel appears. Verse 1, Revelation, chapter 10. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Verse 4, now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. Verse 8, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, Take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the earth and on the, the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. All right, well, let's see if we can process and work our way through this particular uh, portion and, and find some clarity and, and some understanding. We see in verse 1, you know, this, this declaration about the mighty angel. Bible students and Bible scholars alike have differing opinions on parts of this chapter. Some speak confidently and firmly of their position. Others co communicate with confidence, yet flexibility. I want you to hold on to a, something that I learned, and I've shared this frequently through this study. I want to remember that do not be definitive where God is ambiguous. Uh, ambiguous is not a word that we use frequently. Let me give you a, a, a description of ambiguous, capable of being understood in two or more possible senses or ways. So there's some things you can, you can understand it in a, in a couple of different ways. So when God is not definitive, we should not be. If he allows room for communication and consideration, likewise we're to be the same. We know that there's times that people get very divisive over things they should just be able to agree to disagree. They're not essential things. They're just things that are, there's room to, to, to ponder. The point to this starting out is this mighty angel. Many say it would be Jesus. 
and you, you look at the symbolism and, and the, uh, the association, which we're going to look at, and, and how it's like, oh, I, that seems to be Jesus. And some are real, like, absolute about that. Others say it's Michael, the archangel. And there's some legitimate reasons why they would consider that. And there may even be someone as an angel, a person, a being that we are not yet known. It's just a mighty angel that has a job and a place very near the throne of God that goes about the purposes God give that created being. We really don't know because the Bible is not definitive. See, here's the thing to remember. God has left us with an opportunity to discuss, to disagree even, on matters that are not essential. The lordship of Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ, the, the fact that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended bodily into heaven. Those are essentials. You, you, don't, you don't debate whether those took place because the Bible is very specific, very clear, uh, very defined. But there are other things where we can go, okay, let's, have, let's think about this. Let's discuss this. Let's, let's consider this. See, I believe it's one of the challenges we face right now in our culture. I, I don't, I'm not, there's no news to you. You came here actually fully aware, although maybe not personally thinking about these realities. But we live in a time where people can't discuss things. Opinions are formed, politics, economics, world issues, opinions are formed, and you're not allowed to be variant or in any way different than that opinion that's formed. If you disagree, if you differ, you get deleted. You're conversationally canceled or socially canceled. You're condemned and pushed aside simply because you just want, I, I, is it possible this could be the scenario? Is it possible this could be the issue? You just want a discussion. Am I not right? I mean, they're, they're, if you just, we should be able to like, do this. It's, it's actually what people do. This is what people do. And to take the, the, the arrogance and the indifference and, and the, 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 the sense of superiority that you can just delete someone just because you differ from them. And when the Bible gives us many opportunities, many places that we should learn to respect one another and agree to disagree on matters that are not essential, whether it's cultural buzzwords and topics, because you know this, if you can respect someone and choose to, in a sense, see them from God's perspective, this is what I've noticed. You can actually learn from somebody you disagree with. Deep thought, isn't it? You could learn from someone you disagree with. You could be like, I just don't agree with them. But that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it from that perspective. When we cancel and try to delete someone who's over here or over here, we've, we've really punished ourselves for no apparent reason. And the word of God, I believe God has, has presented it in some fashion that we would learn to get along. We would learn to look at these things differently. And we'll, we'll look at some things here towards the end that we can draw from even the apostles. Regardless of what position you hold on who this person is, don't let your attempt to define identity interfere with the intention of Scripture. It's revealing to us something that we need to take hold of. We see from this that this mighty angel has similar imagery as mentioned previously in this book. It, we're told in this passage that he's clothed with a cloud. That's alluding to God's presence. 
and authority. Speaking of God's presence and authority. We're told that he, uh, there's, there's this rainbow, it says there in verse 1, was on his head. A rainbow, we know from Scripture, is a reminder of God's covenant. It's a reminder of his covenant with humanity, specifically that he would not flood the earth a second time. The earth being flooded, we know, was actually an act of judgment on a, on a God-rejecting world even at that time. Looking also in this first verse, we can see that his, his face, this angel's face, was a face like the sun, conveying radiance. You know, Moses was a glow, remember? He went up on the mountain, come back with the Holy Ghost glow on his face. And so we know that in the presence of God, there's this, this uh, when someone communes with God, there's this, this radiance, if you would. You know, Jesus' face is the perfect light. We're told in time to come, beyond this in description of chapter 10, that in the new heaven and in the new earth, his presence will be enough to light the whole place. That there will be this radiance, this perfect light shining forth from him. We see also in this description and this symbolism and this typology, so to speak, in verse 1, that his feet were like pillars of fire. Feet like a flame of fire is recorded, I believe, in chapter 1. It's representing judgment. Fire most always uh, is, you know, represents judgment or the empowering of God, depending on the context of the verse you're reading. Verse 2, we see this angel held a small book, a scroll, in his, it was held open in his hand. Now some hold that this scroll, it's a different word describing this book, but they say it's a different word because the scroll of chapter 6 was opened and therefore, the remaining amount, because some is already rolled out, is small. The book is described as small. They see this book, this scroll, as the scroll of chapter 6. Okay. I am not going to worry about it, but that doesn't seem, they're wrong. It's okay. But, you know, I mean, I don't see the point to that. You know, I'm just kidding. Okay. They're, they've rolled it up. That's their view. Okay. The context of it indicates it's a different book as the way I process the whole thing. And that's my point. I don't have to agree on what it is. We'll know when we get there. We do know from this, and we're going we're gonna to come back to this here in a little while, but we see in verse 2 that his feet were on land and sea. So this angel holds this book, and he places his foot on the land and on the sea. It's a big angel. You know what I mean? I think that we're easy to kind of grasp that. Basically, what's being told, what we see there is that indicates dominion, authority, power over the earth and sea, over all the earth. Moving on there in verse 3, you notice also that there was, there was this voice of a lion, like a lion, as in when a lion roars. If you lean to this being Jesus, then you may consider that, well, this is the, maybe the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's his description. It's his identification, if you would. Well, it's still just conveying that a, lore, a lion's roar, we know that to be very uh, powerful. It commands attention in awe. And that time, these seven thunders were speaking out. We see there in the latter part of verse 3. Carrying us in, into verse 4, it says, When the seven thunders uttered their voices. What? I, I've never thought of thunder as having a voice. It, it, it's startling. It, it, it can totally get your attention, of course. It can scare you, right? You've been in the house. Maybe a storm's brewing, and you're just kind of chilling. And then there's that crack of thunder that just shocks you. He's like, whoa, not literally, like electrically shocks you, but you know, it kind of gets your attention. Well, what's interesting here is that John was able to understand the sound of the thunders. So the thunder could be conveying 
that, that attention-grabbing authority and force and power. It could actually be what we would associate as thunder. But I believe here we're given the invitation to exercise biblical imagination. Not rampant, wild imagination, but it's like within the framework of the Word of God, what are the thunders? What, what, what's being conveyed? And it caused me to think, well, what if the thunders even now have a message within them, but we don't understand them at this time? Is that possible? I mean, let's think about it. Is it possible that God would write within the whole creation a description of his glory at the times currently? We live in a pretty fallen age, but we see some pretty phenomenal things taking place. So, if you consider Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And I, I really do, you know, don't... don't I'm not writing a book on it. I'm not starting a whole new Bible. You know, don't go weird on me. But the seriously, seriously, I, I want to understand some of the natural things and, and see the supernatural presence. Don't read into it. Don't start, you know, your own gathering type of stuff. You see what I'm saying? But be open to what God would say. Now, John simply is been, he's experiencing this and he has a response because he understands these thunderings. He begins to write it down. He's going to write it down. But that voice from heaven. The voice that had, had already spoke to him said, nope, seal them up. The, they were not for declaration at this time. Now, we're looking forward to a time that we're reading about. That, that, that's just the, the, the timeline, if you would. But John was told not to, not to make note. You see that right there in verse 4. Do not write them down. Well, here's something to chew on. Remember, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the totality of Scripture, there's not a latter-day add-on. There's no addition. There's Genesis to Revelation. It was not given to Adam and Eve. Can we agree? Seriously, it was, I know you're like, wait, why would you say that? Well, Because it wasn't. God has chose, in a fascinating way, he's chose to reveal eternal truth to and through his people. He could have actually just given what we cutely, and I, I think it's a catchy phrase, we, we say these things like the Bible is, have you ever heard this one? Basic instruction before leaving earth. He could have given the Bible to Adam and Eve, said read it, live by it, or you'll regret it. He could have given them the basic instruction here on earth. Here's the principles, here's the format, here's the owner's manual, follow it. But he didn't. He didn't. It's a relationship. It's his presence. He's revealing daily and continually. So what we have is he, in this, what we're seeing here, he's revealed the complete word according to his timing. Don't get me wrong. It's not like they didn't have the very word of God, the very presence of God. But it was different for them, we understand. We currently have the complete word of God let me finish. When we leave this realm and enter into heaven, we will understand even more. I think it's understood. I think we can say even expected. that in the heavenly kingdom, we will receive even additional understanding about the ways and works of God. Agreed? Right now in this realm, we have the full revelation of God at this time. 
for this time. That's the key, for this time. Much more will be revealed in the age to come. But now in this world of sin and rebellion, God has revealed everything that pertains to life and godliness. So I know some of us that are really absolute and firm and solid, Genesis to Revelation, that's it. Well, actually, no. Yes, that's it for now. But you can't perceive or even hold to the reality that you would spend time in heaven and not learn more about the one you're spending time with. That there would be more, there would be more revealed in the age to come. And I think it's going to be fascinating and exciting and amazing because we'll have a new life, a new body, if you would, and we'll be an eternal body in the eternal presence of God without the distraction and deception of sin and rebellion. It'd be pretty exciting, actually. So here we have him sealing these things up and it's set aside and has not yet been revealed. You know, there's a lot of people that have wrote books and give explanation to what this means, what was really said inside of here. You know the only problem? They don't know what they're talking about. They're self-proclaimed experts about something that God was silent on and there's nowhere in scripture to indicate what these things, what is written in these thunderings because we know what the Bible says, right? It was sealed up. It was set aside. So, if somebody you know, goes out to the bar, comes home, and starts sharing you what, with you what they heard, tell them to you know, talk to you in the morning when they sober up. So, so now we have verse 5 and 6. The angel, you know, once again reminded, standing on the sea and on the land, raised up his hand to heaven, verse 6, and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Now those who would hold to the position that this angel is not the Lord himself, but a different messenger, say Michael, they would look at this text and go, well, see, because he's swearing by the Lord, by, by Jesus himself, and maybe ways you can work through that. But I would just draw your emphasis. The attention, the direction, the emphasis we see is that it's by God. It's, it's God is the one who created heaven and the things in it. He is the one who created the earth. You're seeing, he, it's, he's getting into detail. The earth and the things in it. The sea and the things in it. I think it's interesting as we go through this book, we're giving these reminders about who God is as we go through this particular book so that we don't forget God is in control. He created all that, all that is and all that we see. He allows evil to take place. He allows wickedness to work in this age, for, in, in a moment, in a time. And he will turn off that opportunity for wickedness. He will allow wickedness to then reap the reward. And he will exercise judgment. His timing is perfect. He's created all things. Notice it says in verse 6 that there should be delay no longer. Some have thought, well, that means there will be no more time. Well, we've seen some passages already that indicate time will be, in a sense, time was created for humanity because God is outside of time. He's eternal. So it's created it for us to have an awareness of dispensations and different things. But nonetheless, what this is speaking of, the time of Revelation chapter 10, verse 6, will not be interrupted, nor will it be postponed. That's the context. We don't want to read into it and apply it to something that doesn't give, we don't have that liberty. They're, they're, the timing is perfect. The time is now, speaking of that time, which actually will be revealed over here in chapter 11, verse 15 this time of the seventh angel or the seventh trumpet, which we see there in verse seven. The seventh trumpet will take place in 
chapter 11, verse 15, we see in this text also something that's very interesting and then easily overlooked, the mystery of God. A mystery in Scripture is speaking of a previously hidden truth, something that existed but hadn't been uncovered, hadn't been unveiled. It's a mystery what this is. It's a truth that God must reveal. There's the mystery of the Messiah, right? Genesis chapter 3 spoke of this one who would come after Moses, one like Moses, a capital P prophet that would bring restoration to humanity, would bring redemption. It was a head scratcher. Like, who is this? What is this? There's the mystery of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. There's the the mystery of the age of the Gentiles. There's this time when it's going to come in which we are now living in, but previously people were trying to wonder, when is that going to happen? What does that refer to? There's the mystery of his return. You know, for a long time, people, and still to this day, in their interpretation of passages speaking of his return, they, they overlook an essential element. They see it as his return, not realizing there's actually two events in relation to his return. There's his coming for his church where he appears in the clouds calling the church up in what's referred to as the snatching away, being caught up, commonly known as the rapture. He comes and raptures the church to the air, and then he comes after the tribulation period with his church and sets foot upon the earth. You see, but if you are not understanding if that mystery that hidden truth you haven't understood it it's going to affect how you would interpret that topic of his return pretty simple consider also in ephesians chapter 3 verses 3 to 11 there's a mystery of god's purpose for the church it's a previously covered a hidden truth that will be revealed in the perfect time we have also we'll just turn to first peter chapter 1 verse 10 we'll bring it up on projection the mystery of salvation Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering. The things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. Track with me on that whole thing. So, the prophets of old were penning, putting on paper what God had put on their heart about events to come. And they're going, when's this going to happen? How's this going to unfold? They long to know where you and I live, if that makes sense, in a time frame. They, 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 they spoke of this, this suffering Savior out of Isaiah 53. They, they understood some of these proclamations. They considered, is there a contemporary fulfillment? How does this unfold? But they were actually speaking of things which you and I would experience because it was a previously hidden truth. We sit here and we look back on Isaiah and we have our eyes open because the mystery of God has been opened, has been unveiled. So we can see in retrospect, so to speak, what they were speaking of contemporarily going, man, what is this? It's this mystery of salvation. Why do we, I make a point of that because here's the thing. It's a good reminder to Bible students. You don't know everything. 
You know only what he revealed. And that's, it's okay. Just be willing to accept that. There's just things I don't know. There's things that we don't know. And it's, it's okay. It reminds us, let's not be too absolute. Let's just, okay, let's, let's just kind of let this come in and let this flow through. It's a good reminder to truth seekers. God reveals truth. It's not that we unearthed it. He unveiled it. He revealed it. He reveals the truth. He opens your eyes to what, has, what he has already unveiled. We have everything between Genesis and Revelation. He opens our eyes at points as we seek him. As a young Christian, you have certain perspectives, correct? I know I did. I, I will not repeat to you the doctrine or the position or the opinion or the interpretation of the Bible that I held in the first couple years of being a Christian. How many of you have been Christians longer than 10 years? Raise your hand. Okay. Have you varied any on your understanding of Scripture? Have you matured at all? I hope you realize you have. Because what you held early on was kind of close to your old nature. But as you get closer to him, you separate from that summary and you start embracing reality and truth from him because we grow in this area. So truth seekers, he'll continue to reveal truth. This is a good reminder to Bible students. It's a good reminder to truth seekers. It's a good reminder to skeptics. Some things are not fully known, but what needs to be known is already made known. What needs to be known is already made known. Consider Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in the time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days we live in, spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he may also made the world. So the time, the age we live in, it's everything we need to know has been made known through the person Jesus Christ. So get to know Jesus. It's that simple. Get to know Jesus we see in back over in Revelation chapter 10, in verse 8, there's this voice, once again, I believe it's the voice of verse 4 that was mentioned. He's speaking, in verse, telling us in, in verse 9 to, you know, take and eat, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. So I actually hold to, he, he literally physically will, chew up and consume this, but I don't really make a big deal about it. Have you ever read a book that just captivated your attention? Or somebody gave you a book and you got into it so much, they stays, something like this was said, I loaned this friend a book? Dude, they devoured it. They were done in a day. I, I asked him how it's going. Like, oh, I finished it. He's like, get alive. How'd you read that so fast? You know what I'm saying? That's what's being conveyed here. It's, it's consume these words of God. Consume this. It'll be bittersweet. There's other passages. Um, Ezekiel 3, I believe Ezekiel 14, uh, Jeremiah 15 speaks of consuming, to, to take and eat this word of God. So we know it's, that's not that like there's some, it's like a supplement or added nutritional value for the body physically. We understand that that he's conveying a principle. Hey, this is to take this in and soak it and chew on it and devour it. And notice in verse 10, he did it. But when I'd eaten it, my stomach became bitter. It was sweet, but then it was bitter. It was just as God said it would be. I'm going to carry you to an important point of all of this. In the context, John is told in verse 11, 
to go out and, and prophesy. Prophecy, in its simplest definition, is God's word in a given situation currently and perhaps God's word in a situation in the future. God's word in a given situation. So John is this instrument that God is bringing his word through. The words of God placed on the heart of man revealed through the hand of man. John will be an agent to bring the prophecy of this book to all people. You know, John is the agent that we are now reading God's content from. So he did bring it out into all the world. You know, in the Bible, there's one author who spoke to many men. Genesis to Revelation. We have Moses, and you know all, you know, there's many others. We know Elijah, Ezekiel, and Jonah, and Zephaniah, and Daniel, and all these people of the Old Testament and the New. And so they had a very unique opportunity. Don't you agree? And they're very, very unique in relationship with God. And, and they were to take what he gave them and share it with those around them. But remember also, every Christian has a special relationship and a responsibility to fulfill their calling in speaking the word of God into this world. In John chapter 20, Jesus has rose from the dead. The report went out from the disciples because some had already encountered him. Honest Thomas, some of your translations indicate he's doubting Thomas. No, he's truthful Thomas. He's like, you know, it's all good, guys, whatever. But unless I can touch his side, unless I can see the marks in his hands, I, I got an issue with all this you're talking about. And in verse 29 of John chapter 20, Jesus appears to Thomas, appears to them, and he, he directs his attention specifically to Thomas. Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who are those that are blessed according to Jesus? Yes, those who the word came through and the Thomases who seen him physically, but Jesus says you and I are the ones that are blessed as well. Because we believe because we believe there's sufficient truth to confirm the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's facts, historical reality. Over 500 people, 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 people seen him post-resurrection, after the, the, the crucifixion. So there's sufficient information. We believe because we know that he is true. We know who he is. We, you see what I'm saying? It, it's, 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 I would have loved to be one of the apostles. Because my mind thinks, well, if you're there walking with him, you'll believe differently. According to Jesus, no, blessed is the one who believes but did not see all those things. Just simply follows because the truth is before them. And we have this calling as well. Whether the apostles of old, our brothers and sisters, the prophets from the Old Testament, the people since the resurrection, since, since his ascension to this generation, we all have a calling. That after consuming the word of God, there would be an action to be taken. John consumes it, devours it, and then he's instructed to do something with it prophesy. He had a specific instruction to go prophesy into all the world. When we receive the word, we digest it. It's sweet and bitter, correct? It's sweet. I mean, it's, oh, wow, forgiveness. It's bitter, too. Like, ugh, I don't live that way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Oh, what a sweet thing. Lean not on your own understanding. Ouch. How do I do that? See, there's an interesting dynamic that's really important to understand because we need to know both. 
The sweetness of salvation, the sweetness of direction, the sweetness of comfort of truth, and the convicting reality that there's going to be transformation, change. Another thing, the sweetness of salvation. Oh man, Lord, I, come Lord Jesus. Has anybody said in a sense, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come in the last two years? You have, we have. But then we go, but wait, my neighbor doesn't yet know you. The bitterness, like, oh man, but people, if, if, if maybe, if I, how somehow I can convey this truth and bring this knowledge that maybe that they would get it. We're to share his love that we've received. received. So, I'm going to give you four takeaways. I'm going to be quick, concise, and get to it. Takeaways from this text. Be teachable. Be teachable. John, who's experienced amazing things up to this point in his life, and an amazing, phenomenal, out-of-this-world, literally, experience, is teachable. See... The thing is, we want to be able to read through a passion, engage with, or read through a passage, engage with people, and still ourselves be teachable. Now, I'm not thinking of anyone specifically. I'm just considering things generally from 30 plus years of walking with Jesus and teaching the Bible. Some of the nicest people are the least teachable. Some of the most pleasant, social, engaging Christians are the least teachable. It's really weird. Sometimes you think the ones that are not teachable are like James Dean, rebel with an attitude, new tattoo, you know, do what I do. You know, not necessarily. Sometimes it's those who are in such a routine, in such a rhythm, in such a middle class experience of life that they already have it sorted out. And they don't want any variation because it'll change their comfort. I encourage you, be teachable. I don't even know what passage you need to be teachable on, but the Lord does. Be teachable and be flexible. The things I used to embrace, the essentials I don't deviate from. I'll dialogue about, but I won't deviate from. But there's some things like what I've read here, I find myself, I'm flexible. I'm not going to make the absolute where it's not necessary. Does that make sense? If we'd learn to do that, I think there wouldn't be quite so many divisions perhaps in the body of Christ be teachable be flexible be in awe of what you read if I go through my devotions if you read daily your Bible and it's just another discipline of your day just quit it don't even read it just go do something else and pat yourself on the back what did the pastor tell me not to read the Bible no what I'm saying is be in awe of the book you read this is not just another manuscript. This is not a help for practical living and just another way to make your life okay. This is the very written word of God, the very declaration of the person of Jesus Christ. It is God speaking to us through his written word. We need to be in awe of it. We need to stop in some routines and some practices and some disciplines and just remind ourselves, I get to encounter the living God through this practice through this discipline of placing myself where he can speak to me. If it's just memorization, if it's just mental practices, it does you more harm than good if your heart's not changed. The Bible is not about bringing in information. It's about ushering in transformation. The information if we read, if it's just assimilated according to the guidelines of language, but our heart's not changed, we've done ourselves a disservice. We've taught ourselves to be religious. But if we can say, you know what, I don't get all this stuff of God. I, I want to I learn. I want to take hold of this. 
which leads me to the fourth point. The first point was be teachable. The second point was be flexible. The third was be in awe of what you read. And the fourth is devour the book. Devour the book. Don't let your appetites for this life and the things of this world rob you of the very word of God. And every one of us have done that. We've faced times and we've had situations and pressures and expectations and forms of laziness or whatever. We've had times where we've made other things more important. And I'm speaking from personal experience of my own practices. And there's times we just need to remind, I'm going to devour the word of God. I'm going to place myself in a position where a place, whether like I drive out to the lake, I'm not, you know, this reservoir we have outside of town, and you guys better not steal my spot. I drive out there sometimes and I just park facing the water and I just sit there and read. And I don't know why, that's just a place I like to go, maybe because I can handle my distractions by looking at the ducks. But anyway, I just, I just put myself there so I can devour the word. I've removed some of my distractions or whatever are, you know, that to me. So I encourage you, put yourself where the bitter and the sweet can keep you close to God. You will face challenges. You will face trials. You will face suffering in this world. There will be things that are sweet to the taste. Like, oh, that's so awesome. And there's things that will be bitter to the soul. The truth of God. But it's through the combination of those two, quite honestly, that you have a closer hunger and a greater appetite for the word of God and the presence of God. I'd like the worship team to come up while we turn to Psalm 29 to finish up our time. Psalm 29. You may be here, you may be listening in this message. And I Just to say it very simply, I, I try to mention this each week because it's so important. If you aren't confident that when you pass from this life, and you will, but when you pass from this life, that you will be in the very presence of God with God. If you don't know that, you need to work that out. It really has to be reconciled. The most important thing to be, dis, to, to, to be dealt with in this life is who is Jesus to you? Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? We gotta know in a relational sense, according to the word of God, that we have been forgiven by God. And I'm gonna pray that here in a moment. Will you stand with me? We'll then, after I pray, we'll, we'll, I'll consider this, I'll pray through this passage of Psalm 29 at the same time. We'll then close out our time in a song of worship together. God, thank you for your presence today. Thank you for your perfect love that casts out fear, that frees us from the constraints of this life. And God, you know each one of us perfectly well. You know everything about us. And you offer us forgiveness. If you're here and you don't know the relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship of forgiveness, a new life, born again, born of the Spirit, I ask you, just receive Christ. It begins this way by acknowledging, admitting, God, I, I know I have done wrong. I know I need your forgiveness. I don't understand all these terms and all these words, but I know I'm guilty of going against you. And by what your word says, that means the consequences for my rebellion, the consequence is death. But yet you say in your word that you, you died for my sin, and, and I, I don't know how that unfolds, but 
I just hold on to that truth. I ask God that you'd forgive me for rebelling. I, I believe you died for my sins. And I would ask you to forgive me and give me this born again life that the Bible speaks of, that your word tells me. I would ask God that in this new life I've now received, born of the Spirit, that you would show me how to live. I turn from those things I used to trust in and I, I take hold of you and you alone with fear and concern and uncertainty, yet confidence because you rose from the dead, because you conquered death and hell. I trust in you, God. And Lord, that's a declaration that we each would make, everyone who knows you. We're reminded and refreshed because we trust in the living God. We don't put our confidence in the things of this life and the things of this world which are passing away. Our hope is in you, Jesus. God, you sat enthroned on the flood and the Lord sits as king forever. In the most catastrophic time on this planet to, the, to this point, the flood, you were still on the throne. You still offered mercy, hope, and love. And Lord, if we know you will not change, you sit on the throne forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Lord, may we know in a deeper way that peace that surpasses understanding as we walk with you and trust in you. And so we sing this song with gratitude and thankfulness, praising you, Jesus, for who you are and what you've done. Your beautiful name. Amen.